Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now, there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet, with faster speeds rolling out every day. and internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. So while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement, while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next generation 10G network, only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary, and not guaranteed. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. I'm not telling a story from my own life to somebody who seeks advice because I think I'm so interesting and they should know about it. I tell them because I I think that it can be really helpful to hear other people's experiences and and to understand that, um, that they're not alone. You're not alone and I'm not going to judge you. I'm going to simply help expand the questions you're asking me, maybe illuminate some, some ways forward. Cheryl Strait has written a best-selling memoir called Wild, which was made into a hit movie. And she's written very successful novels, too. But what most made me want to talk with her on Clear and Vivid was an advice column she wrote online called Dear Sugar. It was turned into a book with the title Tiny Beautiful Things. And I found each nugget of advice a tiny beautiful thing. For me, it's that rare book that you can't just not put down. But when you finish it, you want to give it to a friend. And you want it back. I think Cheryl's an extraordinary communicator. One of the things that I think is essential to good communication is being personal, not just downloading data at somebody. And you're extraordinary at being personal. You've taken being personal to uh, Olympic levels. Where did you get that? How did you come upon that? How how did you find yourself so free to answer somebody's letter where they express their pain? And you don't just talk about their pain. You talk about your own pain. I I think that's remarkably courageous and right on track for getting in touch with the person you're writing to. Thank you. Thank you. That's high praise, Alan. I appreciate it. I I think that the truest answer, which is always the answer I want to give, is that really it, you know, part part of uh, that is a character trait, you know, that came, you know, from the very beginning. When I was a kid, I was always most curious about our intimate lives. I was always most curious about what people were really thinking and feeling and experiencing beneath the facade of what they, they showed to others. And, you know, this got me in some trouble as a kid. You know, I... I would, Why? How? How? Well, because I would ask people alarmingly uh, personal questions. I still do. But, you know, I, I because I just was never interested in just the, the, the regular things people said. So I would... I was always curious about the nature of love, for example. That's a big one, oh. you know. And I would ask people, if there were a couple over, for example, I would corner one of them and say, well, why do you really love your husband? Or why do you really love your wife? Which is, you know... How did I, that go over with them? Did they did they really take the question seriously? Well, what's interesting is, 
and here here again, even as a kid, I would see the response that that got, which is, you know, a lot of people had never really thought about that. You know, they, they'd never actually mm. really thought about why you love somebody. Um, you know, what what are the, 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 the sort of unexpressed forces that, that draws us to a, another person, you know? And, and I've always been curious about that. And so I spent my life asking about people there to tell me their secrets and, and their innermost thoughts. <laughs> and then, you know, when I was handed this gig, you know, asked to write the Dear Sugar column all those years ago at the Rumpus, I thought, you know, he, finally, you know, here, here I am, I get to really um, address this directly in the form of answering people's letters. And you answered letters uh, to this advice column called Dear Sugar. Yeah. From, it sounds like from thousands of people. How many, did, did you ever count up how many answers you, you, you gave? Well, you know, now between the the, the column I wrote that's collected in Tiny Beautiful Things and the, and the podcast I have, the Dear Sugars podcast, it, it really is in the thousands. Uh, but really what's more interesting is my, is my inbox, which has hundreds of thousands of letters from people. People still write to me via the column, even though I have not written the column for some, for some years now, that column on the rumpus. And, you know, I, th- I think that it's been a really fascinating thing for me to see um, that, you know, a lot of times people, it's not, you know, obviously they want my advice. That's why they're writing to me. But really, in, in writing the letter, a lot of people have a very revelatory experience because, you know, you we talk about communication. So often we don't get to the opportunity to tell our stories. And in the form of the letter, people have told me their story, usually their hardest story, their their saddest story, their most bewildering story. And they know who they're writing to. It's occurring to me as we talk that possibly the idea in the back of their head that they're talking to you, who they know from what you've re- written, that, that they know you as an experienced, thoughtful, feeling person who has suffered herself, and they're able to open up th- their head, their minds to their own story, to aspects of their story that they might not have considered before because they never had a listener like you. I wonder if that's part of it because there's in the stories that you publish, the letters asking for advice, there's so much good writing, not just not just literary writing, but I mean thoughtful writing penetrating writing and in 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 the people who are asking you for advice and that's uh, that i think is perhaps a reflection of who they know they're talking to yeah what do you think of that you know i think that's i think that's very true absolutely you know it's interesting you point that out because when i first started doing the column i was it was 2010, I was asked to do the column, and I said yes. On and it, I, I sort of thought of it as a fun, light thing that I would do. You know, I thought I could finally be kind of like snarky on the internet because I'm so I'm so not that <laughs> right. I'm such a sincere, <laughs> nerdy, geeky like person. You know, in that regard, and and I thought I could be funny and sort of poke fun at people. And what I realized pretty quickly is that you know that just that's never going to be what I do in response to sincere letters from people who are telling me their problems. You know, I'm always going to take them them seriously. And and I think what happened is, 
what I found is in that exchange, the way to make people trust me and, and write to me the kinds of letters that, that you know, you mentioned they wrote, um, is that if I were, you know, going to share myself with them too. So if they were going to be vulnerable to me, I had to be vulnerable to them. I've never asked anyone an intimate question, a personal question, a maybe inappropriate question that I haven't been willing to answer myself. And, mm-hmm. and I think that that is really a powerful experience to have an exchange. You know, that's what communication is. It's not just listening. It's not just talking. It's having an exchange. And, and that's absolutely what happened in the Dear Sugar column and in those letters and Tiny Beautiful Things is that, that you know, I'm having an epistolary exchange, a very intimate one in, in a public space. And I often think of it as like therapy in the town square and so many so the whole town gets the benefit well that's right and and people gather around who who what i hear over and over again about those columns is people will say okay here's this letter you know the first the the, the you know the, the the first letter i read of yours it's some, from a woman who had a miscarriage and i'm not a woman and i didn't have a miscarriage and her problems are not my problems but then i read it all the way to the end read your response, and I related to it. I I hear that every day, that people find themselves relating to situations that don't directly align up with who they are. And, you know, I think that's that's the highest achievement of communication, right? It's it's also what art strives for, is is for us to see ourselves in people who appear to be very different from us. And that's what you contribute to this form. You don't contribute to the form. You took the form of the advice column, and transformed it into something that it had never been before. And and in a way, you, you, from what you just said, it sounds like you weren't aware you were going to do that because the typical elements of the advice column are a couple of bromides and a little wit thrown in, a little, a couple of good jokes yeah. about the person's problem. And you turned it into something very powerful. You have the the emotional interaction of people the same as you find in a novel, except it has the added advantage that you have this thrill of knowing this isn't made up. This is real. This happened to you. I, the, one of the things that sticks in my mind is your story of how your father, I think your mother divorced your father when you were very young. Yeah. And the idea that when a letter would come rarely, Mm. And you and your siblings would say a letter from daddy, a letter from daddy, and mm-hmm. the whole letter would be vile about yeah. you, about your mother and nothing about you except how he was going to kidnap you and take you away from her. Mm-hmm. That, that I clutched up when I read that. That that's a powerful story, and it just like a novel is supposed to do. It brought me in touch with you through empathy. I was. I was tuned into another person and the life that they lived as children, as a child, and it would it it really had an effect on me. And mm, there's something about you. there's something about this interaction. What do you think? Tell me what you think of this. The idea that you're not just writing a memoirish anecdote, you're communicating with another person, and I'm seeing something go between your head and his head or her head and back again to you. And I'm hearing this conversation take place, and I'm, in, I'm wrapped up in what's happening to both of you. It's almost like watching a play. 
Yeah. There's something added. There's an added element because you're not just writing it to the ether. You're writing it to this certain person. What do you think? Do you think that adds to the effect? Absolutely. Uh, it's it's absolutely fascinating. And I want to say, you know, I think that, like that story you point out, uh, when you just narrated it back to me, me being this little girl abandoned by her father who had been abusive when he'd been in my life, you know, and yet still I loved him and I wanted a father uh, like we all do. And, you know, the excitement of that letter and then the heartbreak of what was actually inside of that letter, which was, a, you know, as a deeper abandonment abandonment when you when you just told that back to me my heart hurt you know and and in some mm. ways i think that that you know when you say witnessing that that exchange my letter and the letter writer's letter feels like watching a play in some ways to me as the writer it feels that way too that this is this is my you know writing is my way of coming to terms with my own life the letter writer writing to me comes to some terms with his or her own life via the letter. And then the people, you know, witnessing that, because that was, that's what you're doing. You're bearing witness uh, to other people's pain or other people's questions or confusions. And almost always when we do that, which is really a deep act of listening and receiving, we we learn something new about ourselves. And I think that, that what you're pointing to is the stakes. You know, n there's no question that the stakes are really high in the exchange I have in those letters because it's really me and it's really somebody who's written to me. Do you think there's a characteristic element to the advice you give? Does Does your advice tend to boil down to something that you could say is... The hallmark of your advice? Yeah, I, I do think that there are uh, some core values that get expressed over and over again. And, you know, I think it comes from the, honestly, the place from which I try to give advice. I, I try to position myself, first of all, as not the authority. You know, I think that that so often we think of advice givers as the sort of people who can wag their fingers at us and tell tell us what we're doing wrong and what we should do. And almost always I try to be very horizontal uh, when it comes to uh, my advice that, you know, I've been, I've been in these places too. I've made mistakes too. I've suffered too. And that's, and that's where those stories from my own life come from. Like that's, I'm not telling a story from my own life to somebody who seeks advice because I think I'm so interesting and they should know about it. I tell them because I, I think that it can be really helpful to hear other people's experiences and, and to understand that, um, that they're not alone. So like, I think that's one value. You're not alone and I'm not going to um, judge you. I'm going to simply help expand the questions you're asking me, maybe illuminate some, some ways forward. The other thing is this idea of unconditional positive regard which, which I think is a— Yeah, tell me about that. What is that? That sounds like a very fancy term. What does it mean? It's a fancy term for a beautiful thing. So when I was in my late 20s, um, you know, I'm a writer, so I had been a waitress for years supporting myself. <laughs> right. and, I, and I got to the point where I was just like, I understand why the French Revolution happened. You know, I just—I hated everyone who had the nerve to come in and order some food from me, you know? <laughs> and I just thought, yeah. I have to get out of this business. I was growing bitter. Uh, so I applied—I saw an ad— um, back in, in the paper, back when we had ads in the newspaper, remember that? And I answered yeah. it, and it was for a youth, a, a pregnancy prevention 
youth advocate, working with middle school girls in Portland, Oregon, um, to help them with their self-esteem and to feel empowered uh, so that they wouldn't get pregnant before they graduated high school. And I, you know, didn't have any experience in this in this field. I'm not a social worker, and but I applied for the job and got the job. And I got to work with these middle school girls who were living in a very tough uh, environments, all of them. And one of the things I, one of the social workers I did work with told me is, you know, we approach every girl with unconditional positive regard. And what that means is that uh, to to set judgment aside, to allow people to tell you the truth about their lives without uh, deciding that you get to have an opinion about it, that you get to, uh, you know, sort of condemn them for thinking this or doing that or wanting the other thing. And laying, you know, laying judgment aside, I think so many people, when they're listeners, they're always on guard. They're always thinking, do I agree with this or disagree with this? Do I think this is right or wrong? Do I approve or disapprove? And what what unconditional positive regard says is I am going to set those things aside and the the way I feel about you is positive, unconditionally. I can't love you unconditionally because I don't know you, but I can have a positive opinion about you unconditionally. And that that's You know, I don't I, I don't know if you meant to, but this is the answer, I think, to the question I asked. What's at the heart? Yeah. What's the hallmark of your advice? That's it. Unconditional positive regard. That's what I was trying to answer. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that that's and and what happens then, and of course, this this doesn't mean I don't you know have opinions. I just don't allow those things to be the the thing that that drives my response to another person. That I just try to really greet them where they are, and uh, and set judgment aside and and honor them in a way that is is affirming rather than negative. So this sounds like it would work really well in any relationship, any kind of relationship, a, a, a couple, a parent and a child, a boss and an employee, even calling uh, 911, you know, yeah. almost, almost anything, a doctor and a patient and so on. Do, do you think so? I do. And, and honestly, in my own life, whenever... I remember, honestly, when I just remember that phrase, just saying that phrase, unconditional positive regard, something lifts inside of me. Mm. And I, I have more compassion for others. And that's been useful in my intimate life, in my personal life with my kids and my husband. It's also been useful to me from a bigger a cultural perspective right now where I do sometimes feel a, a kind of judgment and anger towards my fellow citizens. It seems that one way not to get mad at your fellow citizens or at anyone who doesn't see things your way is to see things from their point of view. But that's easier said than done. Cheryl seems good at it, and I'll ask her how it plays out in the things she writes. She has some pretty interesting answers when we come back. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. 
All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. This is Clear and Vivid. And now back to my conversation with Cheryl Strait. Whenever I'm helping somebody communicate better, especially writing a piece of nonfiction, I always encourage them to think in every sentence, in fact, in every part of every sentence, about the experience of the person reading it. Now, that may not work so well in novels, but in, in, when something, in something that's nonfiction, to, to, to be aware of how it's being received, how your signal is being received, mm-hmm. seems extremely important. But you're a really good person to ask about this because you, you write this kind of felt nonfiction, but you also write novels. Mm-hmm. Do you think less about the person who's reading it when you write a novel? Do you think more about the experience of exploring the characters and story? Yeah, I think those two things go together. When I was a younger writer and one and more interested in trying to kind of seem impressive, <laughs> yeah. you know, you have to try harder to to um, pull off these tricks. I wonder if this is true also in acting that that you you know you're like when I was first writing, I was tr- trying so hard to imitate great writers I loved to show mm. readers that like I know how to make a sentence that can do a somersault, right? You know, and to show off in that way. <laughs> and and yeah. sometimes what I learned is that actually serves as you know I can show you my trick, but but it but it it, it becomes a sort of barrier between me and the reader, like the reader doesn't actually feel what I hope they'll feel or understand what I want them to understand. And Yeah, you know, I, I recognize that. You do, yes. Yeah, I, in acting, um, there's, you can impress with vocal tricks and that, or feel, or think you're impressing. But I think the progress of most actors is to find that when all is said and done, by the time they're near death, they value the progress they've made toward utter simplicity. Yes. And yes. Not, not impressing people, but entering into uh, the life of the person they're playing in a more full way, a feeling way, rather than showing off. I, that's absolutely the, you know, for me in writing what that is, I, I think about it as relaxing into who you actually are on the page uh, and allowing. Yeah that expression to stand. I had this very interesting experience uh, after Wild. So Wild is my memoir. That was my second book. And after that was published, um, I was asked to record the audiobook of my first book. It's a novel called Torch. And I hadn't by then read that book for a number of years. I'd written it and read it over and over again. And then, you know, you don't sit around and read your own books, or at least I don't. So when I was asked to go into the studio to narrate torch for the audiobook. I got to have this intimate exchange again with my own words. I read them out loud mm. and I could see my influences on the page. 
Um, I thought it, it still stood up to the test of time. I was still proud of the book, but I could see where I was imitating Raymond Carver and Mary Gateskill and Edna O'Brien. Like I could say, that's my scene that I was <laughs> trying to be like so-and-so on the page. And then when I read Wild, I could see that there was no place that I could point to on any page of that book that I would that I was directly trying to imitate any other writer, that I had by then grown and developed and become me, that, that I wasn't, I'd, I'd relaxed into who I was um, as a writer. And I think that there's a really interesting, I mean, when, when it comes to giving advice to people about their lives, you know, so much of it does come down to that. The simplicity of telling the truth about who you are, the simplicity about expressing what you feel when you feel it, as close to the time that you feel it as possible, the simplicity of, of expecting the basic things like love and respect and kindness from the people in our lives. You know, those are very—life is complicated, but those things that I just said are actually quite simple. And, and I think one of the challenges in life, and, you know, is, is getting to that place where you can, where you can relax into uh, the, express, the truest expression of yourself as possible. In thinking about talking with you today, I began to question the uh, the usability of my advice to always think about the reader. Because I was thinking on the stage, I don't think about the audience when I'm acting. If I'm giving a talk and I'm looking right at them and I'm trying to explain how I see things, I do, I watch them carefully. Are they getting what I'm saying? Are they with me? Are they falling asleep? But when I'm on the stage, I'm concerned with what I'm getting from the other actor, how it affects me, how it changes me, and makes me respond in different ways every time, every performance. And my guess is that the novelist is in a similar position. There's a kind of a long-range view of what the audience is receiving, but not moment to moment. Because if it's moment to moment, you start faking. Yeah. You start pulling out the tricks. I'll make them. I'll make them feel this now. I'll make them feel that now. Look how I look like the person. Whereas you look more like the person if you just stay within the four walls. Absolutely. And so there's the kind of kind of four walls in novel writing too, I guess. There, there really is, you know, and I think, too, that one of the things, as Dear Sugar, I often say, is that you have to hold two seemingly opposing truths in the same hand, because because it is what, true. What do you mean by that? That's interesting. What does that mean? What that means to me is, you know, I can, what I've found as a writer is that I can only write to please myself. Mm-hmm. I, I can't if I if I sit down and think, well, now and this is I'm up against this right now, you know, having had a lot of success as a writer in, in recent years. And now I'm writing that next book and I cannot sit down thinking I have to please all those fans who loved my books. I have to write another book they're going to love. If I do that, it's a disaster. So I have to shut that out. I have to write what I think is the best thing to write. At the same time that I'm, of course, always thinking of the audience. I want, you know, I, I want to uh, to connect with them. And so I have to, to hold both things. I have to both exclude everyone from my mind when I'm writing. And I have to have a, con- you know, have a consciousness uh, that allows the fact that they're always there, that the whole reason I'm writing is to connect with those people who are always there. I feel and, the you know, same those, thing. 
Same thing. Yeah, same, that's yeah, it. It, whether I'm acting on the stage in, a, in an auditorium or writing a screenplay that people will see months or years later, I'm involved in the world of the characters, but I also have some, at some distance, a hope that it's going to land on the audience well. It's very much like what you just said. But what are you writing now something that's fiction or nonfiction or some combination? What do you, what, how would you categorize what you're working I'm on? Writing, I'm writing another memoir. But, you know, it's interesting. I think that you've a couple of times noted a kind of difference between literary memoir and 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 a novel you know f- fiction i find myself as a writer whether whether i'm you know whether in wild even though that was nonfiction i had to make myself a character i had to do the exact same thing in that nonfiction book as i do in my novels where i have a fictional character who is who isn't living among us i have to do the same thing on the page when it comes to making, you know, that that life come alive. And, and that's true in the Dear Sugar column as well. You know, when I tell those stories about my life in in trying to to illuminate the problems of others, you know, it still has to always, you, you have to bring it alive. And so this next book, I'm writing a memoir. I have to, you know, I, I don't know where I'm going or what I'm doing. And I'm afraid. I'm really afraid. And... I resist doing it a lot, but it's also my calling, so I'm doing it. How far along are you? Oh, I don't know. Somewhere in the middle, which could mean anything, Alan. (laughs) Somewhere in the middle. Did I hear from you or did I hear from Ann Patchett that at a certain point in the book, about seven-eighths through the book, you want to stop and go do something else? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think that was Ann Patchett. I only only get to about, you know— five-eighths through the book before I want to stop and go do something else. <laughs> but, you know, it's, so, no, it's, it's funny, the, the, the mystery of, of writing, is, it's always that, right? Do you, do you find, is there resistance so much in, in acting? Like, is that work also, does it make you feel like, okay, let's do something else instead of this? Do, do you find yourself resisting it when you were acting? Uh, no, um, especially uh, on the stage where you'd think people would always say to me, don't you get bored doing it eight times a week, doing the same thing, they would say. And the answer is I don't do the same thing. If if the performance is going well and the other actors are are tuned into the value of spontaneity, you don't do the same performance. You, You say the same words, but they come out differently. I was doing a play once where there were just three of us on stage, and it, was, it felt different every night. And I asked one of the ushers finally, I, th- I said, I think it's different every night. Is it different? She, she said, oh, yeah, it's completely different every night. And that, that's, to me, that's like as if someone said to you, would you like to dance? And you say, no, I've done that. <laughs> right. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I, you know, there was a play made of Tiny Beautiful Things. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. Well, that that sounds. How did they do that? So it was directed by Thomas Kale, who's the director of Hamilton, and uh-huh. uh, and adapted by Nia Vardalis, who also starred in the play as Sugar, as me, 
and it opened at the Public Theater uh, a couple of years ago and had, an, had a, a, another run there um, just last year. And now it's going to various theaters uh, around so, um, well, the nation how, and the world. Who does the various letter writers? You have to have a cast of a thousand so, or what? No, yeah, there's a cast of three letter writer, three letter writers, who come onto stage and they narrate the letters. And Nia, you know, the, or, the, or the actor who plays Sugar in this case, it was Nia, uh, does the Sugar parts, which is amazing to me. But I had that same question, Alan, that you told that you said other people ask you, how do you do this over and over and over again? I saw the play so many times and I would just marvel that these actors could say these same words. But you're right. Every time it was different. And what I couldn't figure out is, is if it, if, if it was, I was different, you know, sometimes I would watch the play and weep. Other times I would be dry eyed. Something times I would laugh at something and not, and the next night I wouldn't laugh at that line. And it was a combination of the different, moods and tones the actors were bringing to that moment, but also who I was in that moment, seeing the same thing again. And, it, and it, the, the audience brings something really yes. palpable to it. I, yeah. I, I, I wrote uh, and directed a movie that I, I took around the country to open it up. And when we played the movie in Detroit, it almost didn't get a single laugh, and it was a comedy. The next night, I was in Dallas, and the roof came <laughs> off the theater. And I, I guess the actors were a little better that night, but it was the same movie, you know? Right. No. Isn't that funny? Well, that's with the movie. It's like it's the exact same movie, right? Yeah. You know, the that's, audience it's not contributes. The right, exactly. Yeah. And the audience's contribution is, uh, is important. And you can tell that they're reacting even if it's not funny. I was in a play once where I was playing Richard Feynman, and there was a long, this long monologue about the creation of the atomic bomb, and if the bomb went off in New York, where the destruction would reach in Manhattan. And 9-11 had just happened. Mm-hmm. When we opened in New York, 9-11 had just happened. When we played in California a month earlier, 9-11 hadn't happened. But that was a powerful section, and they were very quiet during that section. In New York, they were even more quiet. It didn't seem possible. And the director came back and said, you know why it's quieter? They're not breathing. Mm. And you sense that reaction. It's not just the laughter you sense. They're, they're, they're one of the players in the play. So there is Absolutely. an awareness. It sounds contradictory to what we were saying earlier. There is an awareness of the audience, but it seems to be not as direct as when you're Talking to them about something non-fictional. Yes, I, I think that the, the there's you know just when after I told you the writing when I'm when I'm writing non-fiction versus fiction I have to do the same things in terms of making a character alive on the page. You're you're exactly right that there is a difference. You know there is when I'm telling a story that I'm saying this really happened to me. Not only do I need to do all kinds of fact-checking and searching my memory and all of that to make sure that I'm being as accurate as possible. It's also true that I'm, I need to be willing to stand in the light of that truth, to say, yeah, no, yeah, the person, the, the person who did this or that or the other thing that you may disapprove of, it's not a character I invented, it's me. And that has consequences, <laughs> you know? That has real consequences. Yeah. But it also has real power. 
You know, we love, we love true stories. You know, I mean, do you remember this magazine? This is going to reveal my, my kind of working class, you know, non-literary roots. I, di- I didn't grow, you know, I grew up poor and working class and in Minnesota and wasn't around anyone who was like, you know, doing some some kind of, you know, acting or writing or anything like that. I was among working class people and and didn't have a whole lot of access to a, a, a wealth of, of good books. But what I did have is I would babysit um, at homes where the, the wife uh, and mother subscribed to this magazine called True Stories. Do you remember this yeah. magazine? Yeah, it's a terrible, yeah. trashy magazine from the 70s. And they'd have awful, often kind of scandalous stories about people's lives. And I read, I just read those things and absorbed those things. Again, you know, this falls into line, this first question you asked me, how, you know, how did this be, become my life, this, this discussing people's true stories? But I've always been moved by that, that kind of sense of like, this really happened to me. Um, and I, and I think it's because, you know, we don't get to protect ourselves when we when we know that that really happened to somebody. In a novel, we can say, well, somebody made this up. It didn't really happen. When somebody's telling us the truth, I think it just, you know, by very virtue of its truth, has deeper meaning in our own lives. Are you writing all the time? When you were on the trail in Wild uh-huh. and you went, you went through a tough experience, was part of your brain saying... I, here's how I can put this into a sentence. A part of my brain is always saying, here's how I can put this into a sentence. That's how I think. But I wasn't I wasn't thinking when I was hiking the PCT uh, that I was going to write a book about it. I, I, what I think uh. is everything that happens to me in my life may sometime end up on the page. But at the time when I was hiking the trail, I was actually, the book I was writing in my head was Torch, my first book. Uh, I, it, mm. I didn't really think about writing about my hike until well after I had finished the trail. I mean, I didn't begin writing that story for more than a decade after I finished my hike. A decade. So a decade later, the details of the hike came back to you. I, this I, I, I've written, what do you call it, um, memoirish stuff, <laughs> many, a lot. And it always astonishes me how the details come back. Yeah. For the first time, and it's, there's some associative process that pulls them up. Once you get one, you get others. And and that whole hike came back to you in detail. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, that's the thing people always worry about. Well, first of all, I had kept a journal uh, all through my 20s and into my 30s. And so my, my Pacific Trail hike was documented in my journal. Uh, but I also, yeah, I, I, you're right. The, the, this, this thing about writing memoir is that you think you're not going to remember something. You begin writing, and and, th- and portals in your brain open up. I'm sure this is this can be scientifically proven because it's happened to me over and over again. And I, and when I teach writing, this is the thing people always worry about. They say, I don't. I can't remember what I had for lunch yesterday, you know. So how am I going to remember what happened 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago? And I always say, trust me, just begin writing. So one of this, the assignments that I actually give people is write what you don't remember, <laughs> um, which sounds crazy. But Alan, if you sit down, you know, if I gave you an assignment, write, write, write what you don't remember about, you know, fill in the blank. What's going to happen is you're going to have pages and pages of things that you're going to think you don't didn't remember them, and then you remember them. 
and you you write about them by not remembering them. Well, thank and God, the thing, we, thank God, we don't remember everything that ever happened to us <laughs> until we need to. That's true. But the thing I liken it to, and this happens, everyone can relate to this, is this. You know, when you say, "Well, you know," uh, you run into an old friend from high school or something. And you get to talking, and he or she says to you, oh, you remember that time we did this or that or the other thing? And you're like, uh, not really. And then you, and then suddenly you do. Yeah. And you're like, oh, yeah, and then we did that. Remember that? Oh, yeah, we did that. And this is exactly the writing process. When you're writing about your life, it's, it's simply that you haven't tapped into that, that memory for a long time, but it's there. That's a wonderful place to pause in our conversation. I hope I, I hope I get a chance to talk more with you one day. This is, uh, this is as much as we can squeeze into this one podcast right now. Do you mind doing these seven quick questions, seven quick answers to qu- quick questions? I'd be happy to do them. Okay, first of all, what do you wish you really understood? Um, well, you know, it's interesting. We're talking about kindness so much. I, I do I do wish that I understood uh, uh, people who who make conscious, happy, gleeful choices not to be kind. Cruelty. <laughs> I, I don't oh, understand yeah. cruelty. I don't. Okay, here's one. What do you wish other people understood about you? Hmm. <laughs> I, I wish... Uh, that people understood that as much as I love to nurture and give and get out there and talk, I'm really an extrovert. My secret self, you know, the thing that's true underneath my service is that I'm a hermit and I love to be left alone. (laughs) (laughs) What's the, what's the strangest question anyone ever asked you? Huh? The strangest question. Um, well, you know, at one of my book events, when I was first promoting Wild, um, I had talked about how I was, you know, hungering for, for food on the trail. And at the, during the Q&A, an elderly gentleman stood up and asked me if I'd ever had sex in exchange for food. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the strangest question anybody's come up with so it's far a, in the show. I, I thought it was both the best and the worst question I've ever received. The answer, by the way, is no. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for filling us in with that. <laughs> what about you, Alan? Have you ever had sex in exchange for food? Oh, yeah, that's how I live. Yeah. <laughs> what, how do, here's the next question, thank God. What, uh, what, do you, what do you do? How do you stop a compulsive talker? Oh, here's a, you know, this is a great practice. I think this is good for all of us to practice this. Use your words. Tell the truth. Say, Oh, excuse me. I I actually have to leave right now, and uh, it was nice talking to you. Goodbye. You actually just have to put an end to it. <laughs> yeah, good. Is there anyone you just can't feel empathy for? I don't. You know, I've never met that person. Um, but I, you know, I I will say that in this current political climate, I have struggled with understanding uh, some of the ways that people think about the world and about others in the world. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm grappling with that right now, actually. Um, but, but you know, it, 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 that, it doesn't have a, a face, a, a particular face. It has, um, I'm thinking about people in categories, and almost always when we do that, we go wrong. Okay, here's question number six. How do you like to deliver bad news, in person, on the phone, or by carrier pigeon? <laughs> 
Well, you know, I I would always choose carrier per, uh, the the carrier pigeon when available, but sadly, I've never had that option available to me. <laughs> I do think <laughs> I think it depends on the bad news, right? If it's personal and it's sad bad news, uh, I think it is good to be in person. If it's if it's like professional bad news, like oh, I'm going to have to you know reschedule our appointment, uh, email is totally sufficient. Okay, our last quick question. What, if anything, would make you end a friendship? Hmm. I think that I have ended friendships before, uh, and only in a couple of cases, but always for the the same reason, and that is that it became truly apparent that that friend did not have my best interest um, in mind or heart, you know, that this person was actually you know, wanting to to hurt me and harm me. And when when that becomes apparent and it becomes a kind of abusive relationship, you do have to leave. You do have to let mm-hmm. go. Well, I'm not letting go of you for any reason like that. It's just mm-hmm. we're, we've run out of time. Thank you so much, Cheryl. It's been a really fun conversation. It's lovely to talk to you, Alan. I'm such a huge fan of your life and your work and your mind and your books and your acting and your heart. So thank you so much. Well, that's my line. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. This has been Clear and Vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsors of this episode. All the income from the ads you hear goes to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. Cheryl Strait is the author of the number one New York Times bestselling memoir, Wild, the New York Times bestsellers, Tiny Beautiful Things and Brave Enough, and the novel, Torch. Cheryl is the co-host of the New York Times WBUR podcast, Dear Sugars, which originated with her popular Dear Sugar advice column on The Rumpus. And she's the co-author of the Sweet Spot advice column in the New York Times Thursday Styles edition. She's a terrific writer and a wonderful woman to get to know. This episode was produced by Graham Chedd with help from our associate producer, Sarah Chase. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula. Our tech guru is Allison Costin. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or from wherever you listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Eric Kandel, who won a Nobel Prize for a major breakthrough in understanding how memory works, and who really knows how to tell a story. It was so exciting. I put an electrode into the cells of the hippocampus. This was the region that had been shown to be important for memory storage. And I heard the boom, boom, boom of action potentials, and the thrill of having that was just spectacular. Now, I had the naive idea that all you had to do is put an electrode into a cell that was involved in memory storage, and I would understand how memory works. How dumb can you be? Yeah, well, I wish I was dumb like Eric Kandel. 
Join us next time for some fascinating talk on Clear and Vivid. To listen to these conversations, subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.